Hi, everybody. Welcome along to episode 45 of Percussion Discussion. Hope you're enjoying our conversations. Um, please check out our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, our YouTube channel. Please give us a subscribe if you can. Uh, this way you won't miss any of the uh, conversations that we've already done or any of the great ones that we've got coming up. Uh, if you prefer to listen on the go, then you can find our conversations in podcast form on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you just search Percussion Discussion, you will find us. Um, on to today's guest, or guests, I should say. I've got a fabulous co-host, um, a good friend of mine and an incredible drummer who's played with a, a whole host of people. Um, I'm not going to name them all, everybody from, um, from Jeff Beck to Annie Lennox, to his current gig, Anastasia, and a whole load more in between. Um, Mr. Steve Barney. So it's great to have Steve with me. And for our main guest, he is a friend of Steve's. He's actually uh, produced a band that Steve's played for. A bit of a clue there. Um, his uh, drumming career started off um, in the very early 80s, playing drums for Adam and the Ants, as well as producing Adam. Um, and then he's gone on to play and, and write and uh, produce so many different artists, including Tears for Fears. Um, he's he's co-written some of their biggest songs. You're going to hear all about it in the interview. So I don't want to spoil it for you. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce my good friend, Mr. Steve Barney and Mr. Chris Merrick Hughes. How are we both? Are we all good? I'm very good. <laughs> I, was, I was being polite and waiting for Chris to speak first. I'm very good. Uh, in fact, I'm incredible because I'm so happy to see Mr. Hughes. And of course you, Matty, but thank you. Thank you. you, Chris. I haven't seen you for a, lo a long time and it's great. This is, this is so great. So I've spoken slightly before you, Steve, and now after you. Um, yeah, thanks for the invite. This is amazing. I'm very happy to chat. Well, it's great. It's great to see you both. And um, obviously you do both know each other. And I think a great place to start would be uh, explaining how you know each other. Obviously, I'm I'm the outsider here, I, you know. Okay. Uh, so who, I, I don't know who wants to take it away, but it, I'm sure it's a fascinating story. I've heard the result of off? the story, so here we go. Shall I kick off, Steve? You kick off, Mr. Hughes. Okay. Um, I was invited to uh, listen to some um, recordings by a group called Bullywag, and I was invited to listen to their demos and... Um, subsequently meet them in London and uh, we got like a house on fire and started rehearsing um, in order to um, do an album um, pretty quickly and I remember the first couple of days of um, trying to organise with the band um, the nature of how the tracks might be played and Steve was absolutely sensational I was sort of firing lots of ideas, right, try and do this. Perhaps we could have a pause here, come back a little bit louder, slow down here. And Steve was just so eager to get everything under his belt and right and was such a deliverer, an amazing, amazing drummer. And I just sort of fell in love with the band. But uh, the engine was no doubt was Steve. I think, Steve, that's about right, isn't it? Well, that is incredible of you to say. Thank you, mate. It's really kind. From my perspective, it was a it was a huge honour to have Chris and his uh, his good friend Gary Langan involved. Indeed, Gary, yeah, for the album. And for me, um, knowing that Chris was a drummer and a great producer was a kind of a, a bonus because we had the drummer thing, you know, in the yeah. banter. But Chris, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this because I think it's probably part of the the professional way he works with bands. He's a he's a scientist, 
and he's a lover of music and he's a passionate man and he's a drummer and he's a great guy. And, um, but I felt for me in that early um, production um, sort of rehearsals before we went to Rockfield to track this stuff, Chris very much, very, very quickly deconstructed. He loved everything about us because I guess he wouldn't have yeah. signed up. Bless you. And, um, but he, I, I felt he very, very quickly deconstructed and then put us back together again, if you know what I mean, in, in the sense that it was to ultimately get the best out of us. And for me, he really did that with me. And, you know, I felt a sense of um, excitement. He's right. And pressure and, and all of those things. And asthma. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it worked. But, but, but the deconstruct, sorry to interrupt, Chris, but yeah. to sort of the deconstruct was important because I think what Chris brought out of this quite robust, quite aggressive and quite musically clever band that, that we were, um, I think Chris brought out a tenderness and a kind of a, a groovy kind of mellowness that maybe we didn't know was in us. So, yeah, I, I really thank him for that. You know? I th thanks for that, Steve. One of the things about, just briefly about the band, was the fact that um, there was an extraordinary confidence. So I'd say, right, speed up here or, or bring this down here. They just were so capable of doing every possible nuance. So it was a joy to work with. You know, in some bands, they need a bit more coaxing and you get there in the end. But um, that band, your band, Steve, they were so up and ready and on it and paying attention and working hard. And uh, they were right in the middle of it all. It was great. It was great to share that with you, mate. And yeah. Thanks for asking, Matt. You know, it's, it's nice. nice to, uh, but, but me and Chris have sort of, um, you know, from afar, kind of kept in touch and we've reconnected yeah. a few times since, which is really nice, you know. Yeah. And with our yeah. pal Gary. But it was a great experience. And um, I guess, you know, for Chris, who's had, I can't speak for Chris, but I, for my side of things, um, in all of the great work that Chris does and has done and, and been connected to, uh, sadly, Bully Rag, even though I think enjoyment-wise and musical-wise, it was a big thing and an enjoyable process mm -hmm. for Chris and Gary. But I think, sadly, it, it didn't sort of get the kind of, um, you know, it wasn't successful. But but it was successful in a different way for me. Yeah. But it wasn't successful. And ultimately, Chris kind of got this band. We kind of, he deconstructed us. He put us back together. We were rocking. We went on the road. And then we then we deconstructed and, and imploded, you know, like some yeah. bands do. But, some bands um, do. It's just the way, it's just. But Steve, you've gone on to do unbelievable work. I mean, you know, you're well renowned and well regarded and a great drummer, you know. Thank you, Chris. Who are you, who, who's, who's been your sort of favourite um, artist to, to work for or with? <laughs> yeah. Nice question. It's been a, I'm quite lucky and thanks mate for saying it's not, that. I mean, no, I'm, no, it's not luck. <laughs> it's not luck. It's skill and understanding what you're doing. I agree. I was actually talking about them, how lucky they've been. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, they've been quite lucky to have, I, you know what? Um, a couple of years ago, um, uh, the cap is a clue, but I went to It's Japan. not a clue unless you can read. <laughs> what that says. Yes. It says Sid McChirp. That's another story. Uh, no, I went to Japan, Chris, for the first time. Uh, I've told Matthew about this, but I went to Japan for the first time to play with an artist called Hote, who's a phenomenal guitar player you may have heard of. And yeah. he's been around, I think he's celebrating his 40th year in music. And he used wow. to be a part of a band called Bowie. B-O-O-W-Y, wow. uh, -O -O I believe it's spelled. And they're a big rock band. And um, cut a long story short, I met him in London and I've 
contributed to a few records of his over here. And he 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 brought me and a, another British uh, bass player, Mark Neary, out to Japan. So it was my first time going there, and I was there for three and a half months. Were you it, gigging or were you recording? We were gigging. Wow. It, it was a really great kind of first time out there. So that was a... That was a really, really special thing. I know, and I was going to bring up kind of Japan because I noticed on some ant stuff that I saw you guys played in Tokyo and a bunch of places. We did. You know. um, so, yeah, Hote was a great thing. I'm so, you know, to think that I've played and contributed to a Jeff Beck album. Of course. And subsequent shows, Chris was great. And Annie Lennox, you know, yeah. wonderful singer, songwriter. Uh, was, she, was she fun to work with? Amazing. Yeah. Kind of all I mean, the she's an amazing. She's an amazing musician. Yes. You know, and an amazing performer. And really and truly, mate, my most kind of, the gig, the person I've done most shows with, and I really do enjoy the gig, is Anastasia, the American oh, of course. Yeah. singer. Yeah. And um, I played with her kind of more than any artist. And, uh, wow. Was, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew, you play, I knew you played with her, but I didn't know you played. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks for asking. Oh, yeah. well, now just to, just to yeah. keep up, you know. Yeah. Matty. Yes. Rock on. What do you want well, to say, buddy? Well, look, you know, um, let, let's go back. Obviously, you work both sides of the glass, Chris. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll stick with, with the drum side of the glass for now. Where, yeah. where, what was your sort of um, introduction to music and drums, if you like? Where did it, where did it catch fire for you? A um, couple of things. Uh, as a child, listening to pop music on the radio, and also my parents were both, they met during the war, um, at like American forces dance shows. They were, my parents were from Manchester. So they used to go to these big dance places and their, their love of jazz and dance and jive. Um, we used to, you know, they, we used to play music in the house all the time growing up in London. And, uh, so there'd be things like, you know, big band music, Eric Delaney, all sorts of jazz and jazz dance. Uh, my dad was into Gene Krupa. So he was very aware of, rhythm and jazz drumming and my mother liked Errol Garner um my dad liked Charlie Parker so I as a kid I got all the jazz that was going on that my parents loved and then I was listening to the radio and listening to you know um Alan Freeman on on the radio and, and listening to the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and you know and and kind of studying what was going on I tell you one thing I would like to say, which is something that's come to me later in life, there are a load of pop records when I was a kid, things like <clears throat> Herman's Hermits, for example. And it wasn't quite my kind of thing because um, I like the Stones and the Kinks and that kind of thing. But I was very aware that they were beautifully made records and they had a feel to them. Mm. And there's a lot of records like I think um, – um, Telstar was another one. There was a oh, bunch yeah. of records. I discovered that they were all drummed by Clem Cattini. Yeah. And what a drummer that guy is. Yeah. Unbelievable. Steady, swings, beautiful temperature. Amazing. And it's one of the things I've come to discover later in life, how incredible the guy is. Mm. Yeah. And if you, if you, you know, if you go on Spotify and look at playlists, there's things like, uh, Clem Cattini, my 47 number ones. You know, yeah. he's incredible. He's definitely the British Hal Blaine, really. Isn't yes. He? Yeah. Yes. And he, he seems to have all of that um, experience, you know, that sense of it's going to be easy for him to just to cut a track mm. and it's going to be good. 
Mm. Um, but anyway, so I listened to, um, you know, as a kid growing up, I listened to um, uh, people, and Charlie Watts was a big influence, Ringo, obviously. And then all the obvious ones. I mean, you know, I, I remember hearing John, in fact, seeing John Bonham in 1969. I couldn't believe how amazing he was. What a powerhouse. You know, there have been, you know, probably a lot of the obvious drummers that, I'll tell you, um, a guy called Harry Hughes used to drum in a band called Clouds. I don't know I don't that. Know if he, fantastic drummer. Yeah. Yeah. He's not related. Hey Chris, I remember being in a in a car with you once, going somewhere, and you said, "Check this out," and you put on this piece of music, which was pretty bonkers, and but some great drumming within it, and it was Robert Wyatt. Yes, and I remember you being and saying to me, "Mate, you need to check this guy out." And yeah. it was obviously the Soft Machine before he had the yes. the, um, the accident, which stopped of him being able to play it. But I remember Chris, you uh, yeah. being a big fan of Robert. Yeah, Robert. Well, Robert's an amazingly important artist, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, as a as a singer, I've, I absolutely adore his singing. There's there's so much passion in it. But as a drummer, you know, in the obviously in the earlier Soft Machine records, I mean, the first three uh, albums, actually the first four albums, are, are his drumming's just so um, skittish and fluent and and different, jazzy. Uh, but really important and, uh, you know, quite an influence on me. Yeah, yeah. The slightly jazzier sort of stuff. So yeah. bands, obviously, everyone knows you for being, you know, a great producer and a phenomenal drummer contributing to the most successful period of Adam and the Ants, you know. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the two the two biggies, you know, the two big albums. And mm. um, I'm really interested personally, and I'm sure Matt, you will um, agree with this, is the Burundi beat thing. Yeah. Where did that evolve from? I'm being quite green and naive here, but I'm interested. To me, it's very African and rhythmic and worked yeah. out between you and Terry Lee. But was was that something that was already happening or did you guys create that? Okay, well, there's there's the short version of that and there's the long version. Um, the, the short version is at one point when um, Adam, uh, we, we'd, we'd met up and we'd done did some recording and we went down to Rockfield and recorded just two tracks. So that was just myself and Marco, Adam and um, John from Culture Club. He actually played drums on those first two tracks. I read that yesterday. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we brought the tracks back to London and uh, the business side of it took over and they got publishing and then the band looked like it was going to happen. But um, what happened was Adam said to me, um, yeah, about, you know, want to get this kind of really tribal, this kind of, um, it's quite earthy. It's, um, you know, very proud chested, you know, it's like Burundi. And I said, well, yeah, I know about Burundi beat. I've got the original French field recordings. I've been aware of Burundi drumming for some considerable time. And he kind of, he gave me that look, which was like, you could be, you could be bluffing here. <laughs> But you know, go on, and I and I just went. I know it, honestly, Adam. I know how this works. <laughs> I can sit down and play you these beats. I studied them. I know they go. And he was like, "Great, great, okay, let's go from here." So that was before I joined the band. We had this. I'll try and make this quick. 
we went to a, re- a rehearsal place um, near Waterloo somewhere uh, to audition drummers. And Terry Lee was already um, on the kind of list of potential drummers because he'd worked with Marco before. So we were looking for another drummer and there were a couple of kits set up. And I remember sort of guys coming in and, and I was saying, well, try it a bit like this, you know, and I was sort of making suggestions. And, and um, by the end of the day, as we were leaving, um, Adam just turned to me and said, oh, why don't you do it? Why, why, don't you, why don't you be in the band? And I really hadn't even thought that that was a, a possibility. I'd just been doing production and we'd done the first thing and, you know, I had no idea. And um, I said, uh, yeah, okay. And he said, yeah, you're going to need a better haircut. <laughs> Come with me tomorrow and I'll get your haircut. And uh, first, God things, bless him. first things first. Yeah, come on. <laughs> there's drums, there's tom toms, and there's hairdo. <laughs> so so we went, we went, we met up and went to Kensington Market where he had a friend that did, you know, good hair cutting and cut my hair and gave me a kind of antsier look, yeah. you know. And it was that simple and that quick. And then and it just went from there. We just did. Burundi and kind of swing beaty stuff and you know Terry was completely in on it and got it so we'd sit there for hours in rehearsal the two of us you know just thumping away you know and it was exciting it was a fun it was a fun noise Hmm. to hear the two of us sort of thumping away you know well can can I ask when you when you recorded you know the first two albums yes What's the approach for recording double drums? Would you do it at the same time? or Because obviously it was a Rarely. different time for recording then, wasn't it, really? Rarely. Yeah. Uh, the, the process of, of recording, um, as you know, it's, it, you know, there's so many ways you can approach recording. I mean, these days, if I, was doing, if I was doing those records now, I'd probably rehearse on a big soundstage and, get, you know, and spend time getting the two drums, drum kits to be absolutely gigantic and then sort of routine the band all playing and then maybe just capturing the drum tracks and then overdubbing onto those Mm. uh back in the day a lot of it was bit by bit i mean each track's probably different if i was to sort of listen to a track and go how was that done you know they'd all be a a slightly different approach but we weren't always playing at the same time Mm. um as in as in the way of you know doing studio work but um one of us would probably lay down a basic rhythm and we'd check that that was essentially right. And then we'd just set, set about overdubbing. Mm. I mean, really? I, I mean the track Kings of the Wild Frontier, I think that's got like, I think we feel, cause obviously you're working in 24 track tape back in the day. It's not like digital where you've got an endless number of tracks. So I think we, we overdubbed, drum kits or parts of drum kits, about 13 tracks of drum kits. And that was all reduced down and then more stuff added. I mean, that sounds like um, quite complex. It wasn't. It's just what we did. These days, that's easy. You just you just add more tracks in your, in your recording program. But, but then you, you were sort of uh, tethered to the amount of tracks you had. Going back to what you were saying, Chris, about you and... Terry kind of working it out because yeah. it's not just 
obviously to the untrained ear, it might just be two drummers just playing along with each other. Yeah. But knowing you and knowing rhythm and how it works, those are very, very integral, important rhythms that have been worked out and unified or call and answer stuff. Yeah. Really, yeah. really, it's knowing you, mate, you, you guys went deep to, well, to do you know, create that sound. Do you know, um, you know, when you, as a drummer, you know, when you work with a bass player that you know and you like and you feel connected with, you can do something on a drum kit that's got a certain nuance and your bass player will go, he's going there. I'll, I'll play accordingly. So you understand that the, the, the grammars that get developed between a bass player and a drummer, you know, it could be a certain look and a certain, certain arm movement and the, and the bass player will know that it's a, you know, it's gestural, but he'll play a certain way. With, with in a way, and if you watch any old footage of us playing, we're, we're watching each other quite a lot of the time. So there's things where we're being gestural and, you know, marking things and a shoulder will come forward. And, it, you know, there's, you develop a way of playing as like with anybody else, you know, like a guitarist will learn how to work with a keyboard player. The two drummers kind of grow to work together. And in fact, if the band had lasted longer, if we'd have had another year, I think there would have been some more incredible developments between the two drums because a lot of it was like, we just get this set up and we just do it because it was a very quick process. You know, it wasn't like we had hours and hours, you know, once the ball was rolling, you know, we were flying off to do a gig here or flying back to do top of the pops or whatever it was. It was a bit, it was a bit chaotic. So it wasn't like we had um, luxury time to, to, to work, the next set of stages out, you know, a lot of it was intuitive. It's amazing. It's amazing. Cause you know, when you think Adam and the ants were, were probably, they're the first band when, when everyone mentions double drummers, that's always the first name yeah. that anybody mentions, isn't it? Yeah. So it, it must've been amazing to be part of that. And, and it, it's almost, well, it is, it's kind of a historic thing really, isn't it? Yeah. Having two totally. drummers. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing, the thing is that we did it, there was a bunch of energy and a bunch of ideas and it, it came together quite quickly and we did it and it was kind of not after the event, but like we'd do something and then someone else would hear it and go, Oh, that's great. That, you know, so it, it's a strange one where we would do something and then it would go out into the public domain and just be a part of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So it was a strange phenomenon to be in the, in the middle of and, and witness how it appeared. Yeah, you know, there's, I think it happens to a lot of bands where something will happen, where something will connect and the band become um, successful or there's something interesting about the band and it, and it takes off and it, it's out of your domain. It's out of your control. It's just something you're doing that then becomes bigger than, you know, what you intended. Mm. You know, yeah, I mean, I live by the notion that, you know, keep doing what you're doing because somebody out there will get off on this even more than you. Yeah, and that's, and that's what it's you know for me that's important you know. I must say about double drumming, which we know could be a train wreck, but well worked yeah. out and and with the right combination yeah. can be a beautiful thing. And yeah. funny that I just I was watching um, some live footage, Chris, of you with the ants, and mm-hmm. really really enjoying actually seeing some live footage which I'd never seen before. Yeah, but I'd, I'd forgotten mate, that you're a lefty. I am a lefty. So my, as, as I shared with you many times, and Matty know this, that the huge ins- inspiration to me is Phil 
Holland, yeah. you know? Yeah. And my my first concerts I ever saw was first I saw Genesis and Great Yarmouth in 1980 yeah. with yeah. Phil and Chester. And while it's not Burundi, but they had that, of like every tour, a really great crafted, well-worked-out drum solo that was very African and almost yes. kind of Burundi-esque. Yes. And, uh, and, and also, I, the dad reminded me that I saw... Um, not with Gary, but but I saw the Glitter Band with the two yeah. drummers. So I've often, I've loved the kind of two I drummers. Saw, I saw Steely Dan back in the day in London with two drummers. Really? Yeah. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Who yeah. were the two drummers, Chris? Um, I think, is it John Hodder was? Oh, yeah. John Hodder and the other guy may have been um, Pacaro. Well, yeah. Which one? I don't know. But they did a drum solo uh, on a track called Automobile Home, which is was dithered about on a couple of bootlegs for a while. And I remember sitting there almost crying because they were frighteningly good. You know, like some drummers, they're just so impressive. You know, if you're a drummer yourself, you look at them and you think everything about what they're doing is perfect. The sort of physique, the temperature the kind of muscle memory of where their arms are going, the whole nature of invention. You know, some drummers, their solos, you just, you know, you think, how has he done that? It's always, it's always a mystery. It's magical. To me, it still is. You know, I never look at one. I rarely look at a drummer and go, yeah, I get everything he's doing. I understand everything he's chopping. It all makes sense. Rarely. Mm. It's always something I think, oh, that's incredible. I never thought of doing that, you know. It's an, it's an incredibly inventive thing, you know. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so I saw Steely Dan live with two drummers. There have been a few. Um, yeah, the Glitter Band, actually, that, as you say. they were. That was a good noise, wasn't it? You know? It was a good racket, yeah. Mm. yeah. But I and still stand by. The first The first name is still Adam and the Ants. When you're yeah, yeah. top of the pops, it's like... The oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. That's, that, yeah. It was very, very... Um, yeah, it was it was very punchy and very of the moment, and yeah. well, it was it's absolutely historic, like you said, Matt. Yeah. You know? and, and it's obviously different for you, Chris, because you were in it. But yeah. to us, looking at it, it was it covered fashion, it covered music, it was it was um it was it was kind of groundbreaking, man. Let's face it, it was. Oh well, that's you know? thank and you. There you were. That yeah. was you. I tell you what, live it must have been a tiring gig because I think you you shared that the, the 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 video you were talking about the live video with me, Steve. Mm-hmm. And and I just put high energy exclamation mark times yeah. whatever. It's full on, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> it is. The thing that the thing that was um, remarkable was that the opening, virtually without fail, the opening number was an absolute tour de force battle cry moment, and um, the response from the audience generally was like a roar which would come up and, and be louder than the drumming. Mm. Uh, and the the effect that has on you, I mean, the adrenaline, the general level of excitement and the, and the sort of sense of being there and that's all going off, um, does affect your body chemistry, you know, and we were getting through those gigs. And we'd come off, um, I'd come off uh, just wringing wet, just completely soaking. Not exhausted, but just hot and in that place, you know. Um, so I look back at it now and think, wow, how did I get through that? But at the time, you're just driven by the excitement and the, I suppose the commitment to just wanting to deliver. 
you know, we're here. And stand. Oh, and stand. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. Yes, I heard that. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll tell you what, I, I'm sure, I mean, me, me and Matt have been speaking a lot about your career and as a drummer and a, and a producer, mate, and there's certain things that we just... Mate, we have to touch upon because they're such okay. great pieces of work. If you'd be kind enough to kind of share your listen, if you'll have me, here, I'll mate, you know you you bowl them, I'll bat them back. You're here. We have to mention the epic, the epic band that is Tears of Fears. Mm, yes, that you are such a huge part of their sound yes. and their creativity, and I love that band. I mean, yeah, I do. I'm, <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm sure you do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love the guys. You know, yeah, I love the guys, and you know, I've known them a long time. You know, uh, when I met them, uh, I mean, we have a running gag. You know, when I met them, I mean, I'm about seven years older than them, and and still am. You know, uh, and yeah, and you know, I've seen them grow, obviously, uh, from from young lads yeah. through to you know, recently see or fairly recently seeing them at the O2 mm. and the season before at uh, at the Albert Hall. You know, and I thought they were absolutely sensational. Me too. You know? And I and I just loved the whole thing. You know, but I remember all I remember all the stages of all the work that was done. And you know, you have to understand that both of them are amazing musicians, and both of them have an innate sense of rhythm and timing and tempo. Mm-hmm. It's innate with those guys. So they'll, you know, if they're rehearsing, they'll start a track off. They'll know where they are tempo-wise. They'll know what temperature to come in. They're, f- they're fantastically competent and yeah, really yeah. talented. So when you make a suggestion about how a drum thing might work, they understand the nuance. They understand, yeah, that could work. Yeah, let's try that. That'd be great. Yeah. Or no, we think it maybe could be this. So it's, a, it's always a fantastic conversation with them about how something should be. Yeah. I mean, we obviously we fell out and not fall out, but we disagreed on things and we have, you know, strong opinions about how something should be. But you do. If you're working in a bubble where you hope to achieve something great, you're bound to have discussions about um, what people are thinking, and whether something's achievable or whether the idea is any good, you know. And you also have to say, come on, guys, it may not be the best idea you've ever heard, but let's try it in case it leads on to something. Mm. So we went through all that. You know, we, you know, the, the, the level of conversation about um, trying to improve something was endless. You know. And it was like a, a year later, someone phones me up and says, have you got a good hi-hat sound yet? You know, <laughs> <laughs> And you say no. Not you yet. Working on it. <laughs> Six yeah. months and we'll have it. Yeah, we will. Roland's but, uh, just bought. Roland's just bought a new hi hat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, mate. I mean, again, again, speaking to Matty about this, and I'm sure Matty's got questions about this stuff. But I remember, even, I mean, there's a massive um, journey, I guess, for you. I mean, not yeah. just as a drummer and and uh, becoming a producer, mate, but how organic and acoustic, say, the ants were, and all your drum thing for that. And you obviously embraced Chris, um, you know, the sort of technology, and because yes. Tears for Fears. Was quite a stuff different, different in kind of well. Let's just start with the drums. A lot of program stuff and yes. really quite special. Yeah, um, I think. I think. Um, I do. Uh, weirdly, I remember we were recording uh, the ants. We were recording um, 
at Air Studios when Air Studios was in Oxford Circus, not not where it is now. And um, uh, McCartney was in one of the other rooms, and he lent me um, uh, a Lindrum. It was the old LM1. And I did program, um, uh, uh, forgive me what the song is, but it's a kind of cowboy beat. And um, I thought, oh, this would be cute. And we actually, this, it's a cowboy beat lindrum on one of the ants tracks and it was the first um and there wasn't much more program because obviously we were thunderous and did our thing but i was excited and, and enjoyed the idea of programming and, and drum machines and that i could sense it was coming mm-hmm. you know it was it was it was obvious it was coming and by the time um i was working with the tears it was yeah drum machines were around and they were programmable and you know it was a great period for me to sit with a box and go, well, I would physically go, how does that translate to the box? So that will feel like it's kind of human, but also a box. And I was really excited at the idea of programming the box to be almost human, but clearly slightly alien. And there's a lot of records where the drum box is absurd, but you love it. It's it's yeah. never going to be what a drummer would do, but it's an infectious thing. And although there was at the, in the early days there was quite a lot of um, reluctance or resistance, like what's going on here. There were other people that were early adopters that went, "Yeah, this is fantastic. I just love the way this thing makes a racket." And and Kurt and Roland were very much of that age, where yeah, drum box, yeah, of course. It was like natural to them. Yeah, why not? Yeah, got a drum box. I did the demo with the drum box. It feels great. Yeah. So um, it was one of those things where we kind of shifted into Fairlight programming, drum programming, keyboard programming, synthesizers that are having sequences put on them. It was um, an incredible uh, period of development. Mm. Really, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot more work as well, isn't it? It's yes. you know, it's adding to the you know to the workload quite a lot. Yes, by doing all this extra stuff. Yeah, funnily, you think, oh, well, we get all these boxes in, it'll be easy. We'll have the thing done in ten minutes. But actually, if you drop down at an atomic level, which you you don't do in the same way with real drums in a studio, you kind of get the feel of it, and you kind of work something into place. But drum, drum programming is obviously very different because at any point you can go, okay, the way that bit of drumming leads into the bridge at this song isn't right. Let's just see how it could work. You try a different fill out and you do all this stuff and you just slot it in. Mm. Technically, it's, it's, it's a lot of time, but the results are quite straightforward. Sure. So there's things where you don't realise they've taken time, you know. So with Tears for Fears, would you have, um, obviously, you, you know, the Lindrum we've talked about and, and yeah. different things, would would you have laid real drums over the top as well? Or was it, yes. is it mixed and matched? It was yes. never on its own. Yeah. Um, that, I'm just trying to think. Most most of the tracks would have had a, a kind of drum box mm. kind of beginning. Um, and then, yeah, bits of programming and bits of real... Mm. I mean, shout for example. Um, that's that's shout starts with um, uh, LM two, which is something Roland. I mean, the, if you've got, got time, we were working on um, the album, and shout 
and Everybody Wants to Rule the World hadn't been written. We were working on Head Over Heels and Broken and a few other bits and pieces. And um, there'd been a conversation about more songs that might be needed to have been written or other things that might be happening. Roland came in um, one day uh, to play me a demo he'd been working on. And he brought an LM2 and a Prophet 5. And he had a, just a sort of bass synth sort of sound. And uh, he said, I've been working on this thing. And he, he just um, started the LM2 off. And it was like... That's all he had. And then he hits the bass note and starts singing, shout, shout. And I thought, wow, let, let's work on this. So we, we got a little bit of a backbeat put in. Then I got a drum later and got the, um, when the levee breaks, <laughs> chips, and had a goon, goon, gag, goon, goon, gag, and that added to the dee, 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 doom. So that, that mainstay of two drum boxes carries on for quite a while. And then there's a certain point where um, real snare playing and real tom-toms, which is me, come you on shout, Chris, yeah? Oh, yeah, I'm playing the tom-toms and the... Oh, the, the right. Yeah, I play the... Amazing. Back. Yeah, I kick in at the point where that kicks yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the actual, to be honest, the actual um, business, yeah. um, I can hook up two things here. We'll talk about Phil Collins in a second. Um, but that kind of thing was, was taken from a Chester Thompson drum fill off okay. a Zappa track. Okay. Which I which I didn't play correctly, but the <laughs> but the inspiration the end result was correct. <laughs> yeah, the end, hopefully, yeah. Yeah. But um, quick diversion. Phil, Phil Collins. We were talking about being left-handed, or you know, hey, one plays. Um, I'm completely mirror image left-handed. You know, so I play this way. Yeah. But Phil, um, he plays open, doesn't he? He plays. He plays yeah. so he plays so he when he's playing fills more often than not he'll go go goon go goon yeah you know, that that's a go to position for him or go get go get okay, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah Tom Snare Tom Snare <laughs> he yeah. loves that doesn't he yeah. oh big fan you know yeah. um, so he's got this very open sense and I think that um, uh, I took that kind of nature of playing for the Tom Tom work on shout. So that's directly as a result of him playing open style. Yeah. Yeah. It's lovely, man. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, I mean, just sort of. Does that make sense, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I want to echo what Matty says about the intro and uh, the interest of, I really personally like with that band is that the sort of, I don't want to say, yeah, I, I do want to say cult, sort of the cold, almost cold programming of, and that wasn't meant to be cold, but I mean, the difference between sort of like the emotive songs and the kind yes. of dense, Thing, but with a cold kind of you know programming, and then yeah. warmth. Here, here yeah. comes the kind of acoustic stuff, and obviously as that band progressed, you know you you guys did. I mean, mate, I mean you talk about you just said. <clears throat> I know it's not flipping because you're just talking about songs, but I mean, Head Over Heels is one of my favourite songs mm. of all yeah. time. Yeah, what a song! Oh, it's a belter. I mean, let's just have a moment for that song, yeah. please. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, yeah. and um, you know um, Manny Elias, who um, needs to be mentioned. Because he's playing, it's a beautiful bit of drumming. Mm. Yeah, we, we came up. We've been working in Bath, and, and we came up to London and recorded um, his his drumming on that fabulous drumming. Chris, I've just remembered something. When we were in Rockfield doing the Bullywag album, yeah, was Manny not recording in the next studio with Julian Lennon? He was. 
He was, wasn't he? And it's he a small world. It's, it's a small, small world, Steve. And it's getting smaller. Yes, by the minute. Yeah, and I think we we did we did sort of um, hanging outage, didn't we? I think you I think you kindly took us over there, and we had a bit yeah. of a we had a bit of a listen and yeah. introduced me to to Manny. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. yeah. No, he's a fine fine guy and a fine drummer. Uh, and what I'm just saying, the other thing with with Manny, which was just a piece of history, was the fact that Manny was, um, you know, in Tears for Fears as the organic, real drummer. And they were moving more and more towards sample drums, programming, tech. And he was, and I was becoming more and more involved. And he, I think at some point, the nature of what he'd been doing kind of live and real um, became less and less required in terms of how the, how the guys saw the band moving. Um, but, you know, whilst he was working with them, his input was great. Mm. You know, he, and he was influential into the way things work, like his kind of sense of beat for things like working hour. Yeah. You know, although various people tried out for that track, he was, you know, he he was very influential. So, you know, a lot of credit must go to him. Yeah. Although by the time we were doing things like Shout and everybody, he wasn't on the scene. He was, you know, he'd gone on to do other things. It must have been a hugely exciting time of that, you know, because those songs were huge, weren't they? Both yeah. in production and, and, you know, in popularity, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> it, it's nice. I mean, it's nice when people... Say, oh, that track! Wow, you you were involved in that, and that was very exciting. I love all that; it's great. Mm. But, but I'm, I try and remember what I was doing at the time, so I've got some sense of it being, oh, this is work I was doing. Mm. Not, it wasn't just a party, or, or <laughs> you know, I mean, for example, on on everybody, we had the we obviously that's machinery, and it's program base and the whole thing. It's got a little shuffly vibe to it. And I remember uh, I went into, because uh, we were in the kind of control room, and I went into the studio and we recorded twice. I just played drums uh, just off the top of my head, um, a drum kit, just to see what would happen. And um, I think I think it was the first take, and maybe a tiny bit of the second take, I just listened to what I'd played and then um, programmed what I'd played so that it, it had the um, the creative side of it. it was like, yeah, when I just went, do, 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 or whatever it was, um, but it was then locked in. So it was programmed, but all the fills and all the sort of where the symbols hit and the whole thing was kind of real bit of on the spur of the moment thinking, and then all transcribed and put into a machine. Fiendishly difficult to reproduce on a real drum kit as well. Well, there are techniques. I mean, the guy that the guy that plays for Tears for Fears um, now he he has that down, mm. and and he's he's it's one of those things where he's not actually having to sort of gunk 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 gunk. He's four. It's a square bass drum and a square back, and it's just a, he's got yeah. the upbeat hi hat, and that just honestly that just you keep doing that, yeah. and everyone else that's going ding 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 ding, ding yeah. they do all the work. But it's funny because I was chatting earlier to a mutual friend of ours, Steve Ian Palmer, another another great drummer. Yes, um, I don't know if you know him, Chris. But and and I was, yes. I was saying we were having a chat. I don't know him person. Yeah, and 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 he said, oh, he said, uh, 
did he do everybody? And I said, well, you know, I said, I think uh, I'm not quite sure how it came about. And he went, he said, I played with a band once and that was, uh, you know, he said that was on the, uh, on the playlist. He said, and I thought it's just easy. 12, eight kind of thing. He said, it sounded horrendous. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, and the, and, and the, the weird thing is it's not always the drummer's fault mm. because if you're, if you're just, mm. if you're just doing a, a you know, buff, baff, buff, baff, with a, da, 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 da. Um, more often than not, people, when they're having to play a shuffle, want the drummer to be going, ding, 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 which you don't do. Mm. So it's up to everybody else in the band to actually get the gun, 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 right. Because the drummer's just sitting pretty on the top. That's the, that's what's actually happening on that track. Mm. Mm. So, you know, he might be able to play that beat exquisitely, but if the other guys aren't, locking in yeah. where, and, and generating the shuffle, it will sound like a car crash. Mm. Yeah. It's a great song. Such can a we, great um, song. Can we just uh, go back for a second, mate, to one yes. of your inspirations and all of our inspirations, Ringo. Oh, yeah. In the sense that how just how how important he is as a drummer. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I just wanted to sort of connect. I mean, it doesn't take a sort of um, – well, it doesn't take a scientist to work out that um, – Sowing the seeds of love. Yes, of course. It's very, yeah. very kind of sort of tribute in the in the. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure that's where your mindset was coming from. I, yeah. and, I, and I absolutely love your playing on sowing the seeds of love. And I, Thank I you. mean, any any kind of um, any Ringoisms you want to share yeah. with people? Yeah, and- we could uh, we could talk Ringo all day. Um, I'll, I'll say just make this. a sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to turn the table. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, very brief, very quickly, with respect to that track, um, we were in Roland's house just sort of getting the whole thing kind of working. And um, uh, I was thinking Beatles and, and Ringo Nurse. Uh, and I said I said to Roland, I had a sort of kit set up, and I said, Ringo, there's a fill Ringo does, and it's in... Um, uh, strawberry fields and he the fill he does is he at one point goes that's the fill and it's stunning yeah and I, I i love it i live it <laughs> and and um we were just talking about sort of not dumb fills but sort of fills that you you know that that speak because they're they're open they're clear they're not like you know yeah. they've got obvious beats in them. And I said, well, he, as I say, he went, goon, goon, goon. so that's a repeat. So I said, I think it could go, and we were sitting around laughing because the fill just seemed like a, a like a signature kind of fill. Yeah. So that was the fill that was, was put in the track and then subsequently, you know, in production and arrangement, it was put at the front. With a load of preverb, you know, backwards yeah. recorded echo. On you don't do that. Zip. <laughs> I thought that was you singing it down the mic. Yeah, it could have been Steve, <laughs> but it wasn't. It, what next time? <laughs> it's, an icon- it's it's an iconic fill, isn't it? It's it, yeah, it's it, it's it, it, it's, it, it's simple kind of, and yeah, it's up there with um with the Simon Kirk fill in all right now. It's a similar yeah. kind of. Yeah. thing isn't it instantly recognizable yeah. simon kirk why uh, he's worth mentioning major important drummer for me you know as a kid growing up watching him work mm. fantastic 
he's drumming on Mr. Big. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's about the amount of time and space between what he's doing. There's every moment you can adjust and understand what he's doing. Yeah. There's no, there's nothing fluffy or bluffy. It's just really crisp. Amazing. Wonder, amazing wonderful play. And, and Matty, Matty was lucky enough to speak with Simon, weren't you, Matty? I did, yeah. I spoke to Simon, oh gosh, I don't know, a couple of months ago now. And was it, he? Did, oh, it was did it go well? Yeah, really, really. It was. Yeah, he's been he's been he's been very kind to me, getting some of his um, fantastic drummer friends on for interviews as well. So it's uh, great. What a drummer, you know. We, oh no, amazing. amazing. We don't see much of him over the here these days. Obviously, he's over in New York or uh, wherever yeah. he is, uh, Long Island, I think. Yeah, and um, it was great. we had a great chat. We really did. Um, yeah. And in- interesting to hear some of his influences. I mean, Brian Bennett was one. Uh, oh yeah. Your man from the Shads. Yeah. You know, yeah. some interesting, yeah. interesting influences. So it was, it was yeah, really good. I, I, as a kid, I remember watching Brian Bennett thinking, he's got chops. Mm. He, he's not just sitting there going, buff, baff, buff, baff. That bloke knows about jazz grip and he knows about yeah. stuff. You Absolutely. Know? And there's a little element of sort of cabaret in his playing, which I yeah. adore. Yeah. Know? Amazing, amazing drummer. You know, but ah. the Shadows are an amazing band, you know. But anyway, I sorry, I steered you away a little bit. I was just comparing that those fills, if you remember. And it, but yeah. just great stuff, amazing yeah. songs. We were talking about seeds of love, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Tune, absolute tune. Yeah. I mean, equally, joining up <clears throat> one of your early inspirations, and you said you got to see Led Zeppelin. Yes, with the great John Bonham, and then yeah. fast forward to you producing and playing drums on uh, the Fate of Nations album. Yes, which is amazing, and I would love. Along with Matty, to hear yep. about your 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 memories of playing on that and producing that with Robert. With I, Robert. I'm happy to happy to talk about that. The, I saw Zeppelin quite a few times um, around you know sixty nine, seventy, and around that era. And um, I I did actually on one occasion um, up to the Albert Hall um, uh, sit behind because you know you in the, the Albert Hall you can sit in the mm. sort of the choir, yeah. and I sat behind, transfixed watching Bonham play from behind and um, catching all his sort of bass drum to the back stuff, you know, and just my jaw, you know, just watching this guy playing. And I look that one gig. I learned so much about the nature of he would raise his ankle and, and, and stab into the bass drum pedal. I mean, this, this is probably boring for a lot of people, but it's fascinating. You know, it's a drummer kind of, show. It's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, all the all the right yeah. audiences here for this yeah. stuff. Chris. Yeah, so yeah. Just... join with me as we talk about. We are, we are one. Yes, yeah. No, I mean, I just just watching the guy was phenomenal, you know. And then I think a year later, I, I watched them at the same venue in 1970 from the front, mm-hmm. you know. And when we were recording um, Fate of Nations with with Robert. Um, you know, I mean, Robert's an amazing, amazing guy, and he's an amazing artist. You know, and as I, I've said this before, you know, you can turn up one day like this six foot six Viking, and you think, oh, okay. And, and other times you'll turn up as like your best mate, and it's all fun and it's dead easy, and you know. So he's got this fantastic sort of personality. And, uh, you know, I remember we were discussing how something could come in, like, really powerful with loads of guitars and it could all do a thing at this point. And and he'd say, well, you know, um, 
you know, when we were doing the Zep thing, we used to do such and such and, you know, it, it sort of change the idea or have a, a version of what I was suggesting or we'd sort of not quite see eye to eye. And I think on one occasion I said, um, I said something about, well, you know, Zep. And he goes, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't really, we don't really have to draw reference to Zep, you know. And I said, I said, Robert, whenever I'm bringing forward an idea or an argument or a discussion or how something could be, um, you don't really want to talk about Zep. But when you want to bring a, a point forward, you're, you're quite happy to talk about Zep. And he sort of, and he smiled and it was kind of impish and he knew the kind of nature. I said, let me tell you something, Robert, that I can tell you something about Zeppelin you'll never understand. And that was 1970, fifth row, in the centre, Albert Hall, you guys raging, my hair being blown back. You'll never know what that's like. Mm, that's true. And he, and he went, oh, Christ. <laughs> okay, good point. It was a fun little, we weren't really, it was banter, you know, it was yeah. fun. But, but it's true as well, out. wasn't it, Chris? It's it true. very true. What you were saying was the truth to him. Oh, no, it's, it's, I was giving him the truth, yeah. 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 And no I, guess, I guess like any young drummer that would have been sat in the audience watching you yeah. with the ants, and not saying you would have um, said, you know, what Robert said, but yeah. you don't have that experience of yeah. knowing what it's like to watch you know, something when you're in it. You know? Yes. You know, I mean, the, the greatest story about that difference between two things apparently was Neil Armstrong. Um, when, when, uh, when they returned from the moon, there'd been this complete celebration on, you know, at central office, as it were, you know, um, they'd all been going nuts and having a party. And um, they came back and felt like they'd, they'd been out of town. They felt <laughs> like they'd missed all the, they'd, they'd missed it all. And yet they were the people doing it. But for them, it wasn't, it wasn't, the atmosphere and the tension and the excitement was like they were working and they were doing their thing. But for everybody else, it was like, wow. Yeah. And I always thought that was an amazing thing. Like, yeah, we've just felt like we'd missed the party. We were out of town that weekend. Guess there's not much TV in space. (laughs) (laughs) We have a problem. (laughs) So you you tracked, I was checking last night, Chris, I checked and listened and enjoyed, mate, the drumming on that, on that, on that Robert Plant album. And, um, was that was that tracked pretty raw and live? Obviously, you oh, had your producer a, hat on, and your your Chris used the drummer hat as well, didn't you? I I did I did some drumming, and and that was done at Rack Studios in London, and uh, uh, there were a lot of drummers on that record and takes of things where bits had worked, and Robert wanted to keep a certain thing, and then other things were overdubbed on, and other people were brought in to replace bits. So it was quite a sort of um, you know, not repair shop, but there was a lot of things that had kind of gotten to a place which were was okay but not quite right. Uh, and I, I basically came in and produced what we now hear, but, you know, lots of different drummers and different ideas. I did play drums. The, um, the two tracks I, I was the happiest with was 29 Palms, which is a pretty straight straightforward nice you know i'd call it like a, a kind of light american rock pretty just holding the beat down and going with the the flow of it which was highly enjoyable uh and the other was um um Farrah carpenter which i um i i'm, I'm just playing 
not much at all, just a few like Tom Tom expressions and I'm keeping a, a kind of beat, but just kind of punctuating against what he's singing. And um, they're great songs. I they are. Like them as songs. Yeah, that says a lot about you. That it's not necessarily when you said that you're they're your favourite kind of pieces. That they're not necessarily like you said. They're not kind of drum heavy, crazy pieces, but they're actually great artistic kind of yeah. songs. On them. Well, you know, you know that difference in there's a thing in drumming though, isn't there, where you might just play for the song. You're just keeping the song really gorgeous, mm. you know, and, and you're, you're you're responding to the nature of what the song should be doing, not laying down drums. Uh, I mean, laying down drums is essential for a lot of music, but there's certain things where the drummer just becomes uh, like one of the one of the rest of the guys and and is trying to coax the song forward, you know. And I think on both those tracks with Robert. Um, that's what I was enjoying doing. It was just like playing for the song. I mean, lots of other great drummers on on that record that did come down and, you know, kick some stuff, you know. Is Michael Lee on that record? He was. Oh, wow. He on the, right. I think he's on the opening track, isn't he? That's yeah, Michael great. Lee was great. Wow, what yeah. a drummer. Fine yeah. drummer. Yeah, I, I met Michael, um, I, I guess, quite a long time before that. And... He was one of these guys that you, I knew he was going to be great and go places and be, mm. you know, because he's quite larger than life. Mm. And I introduced him to Brian Adams just by nature of how you know people and make, you know, I thought he'd be uh, an interesting guy. And, and he did. He became great quite quickly. I mean, mm. if you like, I'm sure, you know, he wouldn't say it was overnight, but, you know, all of a sudden people were aware of that guy, you know. Yeah. I was, hanging with, I was hanging with Charlie Jones yesterday, who obviously spent a lot of time um, playing with him, and, and we were just talking. Funnily, we were just talking about how great he was. Yeah. You know. it's I think he come bouncing, come bouncing up to you with full of energy <laughs> and, and wanting to get things right. You know, yeah, he was but, in the cult for a little while, wasn't he? Was yeah, yeah. 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 It all seemed to happen before. In, his, fact, uh, Char- in fact, Charlie Jones has just finished recording bass, uh, playing bass on the new cult record. Ah, right, okay. Well, it's yeah. funny, I in- interviewed John Tempesta, uh, the oh, drummer from the cult last, Yeah, I think it was last week, was it, Steve, two weeks ago? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I had a good chat with John as well. So right. just, it is a small world, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, and in fact, when you start talking drums, it's extraordinary how, you know, that whole thing about so many degrees of separation. If you, mm. if you just leave it to drummers, they'll all know each other by some connection. <laughs> yeah. uh, That's not a bad thing. World. No, it's a great thing. Um, I must say, um, not sort of focusing on anything sort of sad, but or sort of more so as a tribute, really, is that the last time I actually saw Chris was when we went down to, um, uh, pay, our, to uh, pay our respects to uh, Jimmy Copley. Indeed. He sadly passed away. He played with Tears of Fears for many years, yes. and he was a good friend of Chris's. And yeah. I actually was a big fan of Jimmy's, but had never met him, but had met him two years previous i was on a festival bill with anastasia yeah and I, and I saw that he was there with manford man's earth band yeah turned into a total fan <laughs> yeah. like i am made yeah. a made a kind of you know made a a run for him and um we had a really great chat and he was everything i hoped he'd be and i yeah. told him how inspirational and how how great he'd played when i saw him at wembley on the sea yeah. and um we kept in touch and then the poor guy got very sick and is sadly no longer with us but that's the yeah yeah, you know, you've got to embrace these moments and tell. 
I'm not trying to say I'm a perfect guy for doing that, but I think it's really nice to tell someone how special they were and that, because they won't know that, you know. So. Yeah. Jim was, Jim was an amazing guy and an amazing player yeah. and, and, a, and a connector. He yeah. knew a lot of people. He was very liked and he was very, very good yeah. at what he did. An adorable you tell guy. That. You could tell no, that. The a, was a there was a lot of people there to say there. Now, Jim was an adorable guy and an amazing player, you know. And can I can I ask one more thing before we um, before we wrap it all up? Um, obviously, on on the producing side of things, do you would you rather produce somebody else playing drums, or are you happy you're doing it when you can get on the kit yourself? And rather than having to explain how you want something, you can sit down and physically just do it without. Does, does that does that make sense? Yeah, it's a it's a very sensible question. Mm. The answer is case for case. Mm. You know, there'll be a certain track where. I can hear how the drums should be mm. and I can quite easily ask myself, are you going to be able to do this in the way you want it to turn up as a mm. producer? Mm. Do you, you know, will you do this the right way? And uh, sometimes I'll, I'll think, no, th this guy is the, is the guy that should play the drums on this and it'll be absolutely great. And there are times I think, actually, I think I know how this should go. I'll have a go at this. Yeah. And I, I suppose it's a privileged position to sometimes go, well, I'll just try it, mm. you know. So I'll try something. And then and then I'll know pretty much instantly whether or not um, my approach to a track is going to work and be right for the right for mm. the track. So I'm yeah. very – I don't have any possessive sense about, oh, no, the drums has, has, to, has to be me or, mm. you know, I've got to play tambourine on this one. I, I, I don't care. I'll, I'll play it if I, if I think it's, it, it's going to work. But I love working with other drummers. Mm. And it, but it's a great tool to have in your locker as well. Yeah. You speak the language you can, yes. you know. Yeah. And it, I think across time when, when drummers are, you know, working something out or they're doing a thing – um, it's quite easy for me to say, I love what you're doing. Um, at this section, it's absolutely spot on. Perhaps when it gets to this point, drop back a bit. Mm. And, and most of us go, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Wasn't I doing that? You go, yeah, well, you were, but I'm saying perhaps even more. And they go, yeah, great. Mm. So it's an easy dialogue. Yeah. You know, if, you if you understand the nature of drums, yeah. drumming, it's quite easy to talk to drummers yeah. who know what they're doing. It kind of takes it's us back to the beginning. It's very enjoyable. Yeah. It's very enjoyable, you know. Well, that's exactly how I felt about working with you, Chris. You know, the kind of the ebb and flow of you listening to me rocking out yeah. and not trying to impress, but just play what's right for the song. And then within the jams and the stuff that we were doing, you could hear things that yeah. I couldn't hear. Yeah. And you would pick them out and say exactly what you said there. We could put that over here. And it was really, um, it was really helpful to me, mm. you know. Like, yeah, but you were, as I said before, you were very responsive. You know, there was nothing, there was never a point where you go, uh, uh, I don't, I don't understand, or I can't do that, or it doesn't make sense, or I don't like that. You'd, you'd always go, okay, give me a sec. And then you'd come, you'd come back with something probably better than, you know, what I'd hoped for. So, I mean, it was a joy, Steve. No. Still is, mate, but it's a joy. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, yeah. Likewise, mate. It's great. Well, this look, I, lovely, eh, Matty? I think that brings us full circle. 
And uh, I think it's it's a, it's a fantastic point to end our little chat. So, Steve, thank you for for, for co-hosting with me. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. And of course, <laughs> what can I say, Chris? Thank you so much for taking oh, the time. It's been fascinating. You. It really has. Thanks, Matty. I've really enjoyed it. It's been amazing. Superb. Thanks, so, thank Chris. you. Thank you both for your time. And um, let's hope we can get back out doing what we do very shortly, eh? Yeah, that'd be nice. Great. Thank you both very much.